For the week of February 27th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome all. Thanks for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media with you. Sorry we missed you all last week. We were uh, we had some travel schedules and we had to skip the show. But we're all together once again, and we've got a lot of news that's piled up for us to discuss. Here in D.C. to help us get through it is Catherine Hamilton, the founder of the clean energy public policy consulting firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how are things this week? They're just great. I'm sorry we missed a week, but I got to celebrate my birthday, and we had two days of spring followed by two snows. And what better way to celebrate your birthday than with the energy gang? So you must have been uh, quite upset that you didn't have us with you. I did. I was desolate. (laughs) And in New York City, it's our other co-host, Jigger Shaw. He is a clean tech investor and founder of Sun Edison. Jigger, what's happening in New York? Well, you know, so much good stuff. You know, the Green Bank launched, and so you've got uh, a lot of folks buzzing about that. But um, but New York City is always New York. It's always lively and interesting. Well, we'll hope to get some updates from you as the Green Bank uh, starts rolling out. Before we begin, I do want to remind folks about an upcoming live show that we're putting together on April 1st. We'll be at the Building Energy Summit in Washington talking intelligent efficiency That's going to be a one-day event with a lively discussion about all things building efficiency, and I hope you can join us. Um, More details are at 2014.buildingenergysummit.com. Today, however, we are talking solar, or more dramatically, the solar trade wars. And our good friend Shale Khan, the senior VP of GTM Research, is on the line from Boston to help us understand the state of play. Shale, how are things up there in the uh, Boston Green Tech Media offices? Things in the Boston Green Tech Media offices are good generally, except for it just started snowing for, I think, the 400th time this winter about five minutes ago. So I'm not looking forward to my commute home. But in the meantime, happy to be here. Well, you know, you've got uh, this great Solar Market Insight report that's coming out next week, so at least you have some positivity around that. That's true. Yeah, we're releasing the final year-end 2013 solar data on the U.S. next Wednesday, March 5th, along with SIA, and the numbers are going to be impressive and strong and uh, much better than this winter has been. All right. Well, we have invited you to talk about something a little less positive than last year's solar numbers, the implications of Solar World's latest trade complaint against China. We're going to look at the details of that complaint and try to give our best judgment on what it means for the economics of solar. Then we're talking Tesla. The high-end EV maker has announced a gigawatt-scale battery factory, a partnership with Solar City for solar uh, battery storage, and has had a secret meeting with Apple. We'll ask what the company is up to. In our final segment, we'll look at the treacherous valley of death for cleantech entrepreneurs and ask if it's getting any easier to cross. And of course, at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. All right, let's rock. Last week, the International Trade Commission accepted SolarWorld's latest complaint about China's solar trade practices and agreed to investigate whether Chinese manufacturers are illegally using a loophole to avoid trade penalties. This has sparked worry in the solar industry that another round of tariffs will destroy the economics of solar in the U.S. So, Shale, um, let's break down what this latest complaint is all about. We had a show on this recently, and we kind of laid out what's on the table, but I think it's helpful for you to describe for us what Solar World is arguing this time around. Sure. So let's start with the initial investigation. So this started back in 
2011 in October. Solar World filed an initial anti-dumping countervailing duty petition against Chinese solar manufacturers, alleging that they were both illegally subsidized by the Chinese government and dumping products into the U.S. Ultimately, that petition succeeded, and the U.S. imposed about an average 31% import tariffs on Chinese solar products. But the caveat is that when Solar World filed the petition, the scope of the petition was restricted to the location of the solar cell manufacturing. Now, manufacturing most solar panels is a four-step process, the third step of which is manufacturing the cell. So that's not the entirety of the value chain. And what ended up happening is that though there are import tariffs on Chinese solar cells, there are not import tariffs on Chinese solar panels that use cells from outside China. And so as a result, a lot of Chinese manufacturers were able to use a value chain strategy wherein they outsource their cell manufacturing to locations outside China, primarily Taiwan, and then ship them back to China for module assembly, then to the U.S., and thus avoid the tariffs. So this time around, SolarWorld filed another petition, this time trying to go after both Taiwan, saying that Taiwan is dumping product into the U.S., and also after Chinese modules that use Chinese wafers. This is basically to say, if you're not deep in the weeds of the solar value chain, they're trying to button up both ways in which the Chinese manufacturers are able to avoid tariffs right now. So the petition was filed December 31st. Uh, the initiation has already taken place. What happened last week was that the International Trade Commission made a preliminary determination of injury, saying that there has been some injury to U.S. manufacturers. It was a relatively low bar to set, so it's not saying a whole lot at this point. But really what we're waiting for is to hear the initial margin determinations of how large these tariffs might be, which will come at the earliest in late March and at the latest back into July and August. And so the scary thing here for the industry is that if taken to its logical conclusion and we have some sort of uh, sweeping decision, then uh, a modules with any type of Chinese cell could potentially face a tariff. Is that correct? Basically, yeah. I mean, it, it basically makes it such that uh, you can't have a Chinese cell or a Chinese module without having the tariffs be imposed. So it, it more or less eliminates any kind of value chain strategy that would allow a Chinese manufacturer not to have the tariffs imposed upon them and thus makes the tariffs a lot harder to get around. And a little context here for our listeners, uh, Chinese ingots and wafers uh, represent about 73% of capacity. And according to GTM research, Chinese manufacturers had about a 71% market share for installed modules in the U.S. and residential commercial markets. So a really, really significant uh, penetration there from Chinese producers. Jigger, what is uh, your latest reaction to this complaint? Well, I think it's important to note that, you know, people were were aggressively pricing uh, before this trade case was filed in, on December 31st at 63 cents a watt in the U.S. Today, no module manufacturer is offering less than 72 cents a watt. So we've already had a substantial almost 20% increase in the cost of modules just because of this trade case. And that came from the fact that Taiwan and Chinese module manufacturers have already raised prices in anticipation to the fact that they may actually have to pay tariffs. Um, and so that has already 
severely impacted the economics of large utility scale projects that were you know pricing at a dollar thirty five a dollar forty five a watt for the second half of this year um, and so I think that you know we've got chaos on our hands again um, which is not in anyone's best interest and um, and you know the question now is how do we get out of this chaos and you know what's what are the sort of political steps we can take to uh, you know show solar world the grave now wait a second here shale I'd like you to jump in here because this sounds a little bit like a scare tactic here. I mean, module and cell prices are rising generally because of demand, right? I mean, can we really say whether it's the threat of the tariffs that's raising prices? Yeah, good question. And uh, Jigger, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that point, though not necessarily in general. So you're right in the sense that module prices have been increasing um, from something in the sort of mid-60s mid last year into the low 70s now. So you're right about the pricing. The problem is that that's been happening everywhere, not just in the U.S. That's a global phenomenon because demand has been high and utilizations have been full, and so manufacturers are actually seeing some margins again. And some of that may be due to a run-up in the U.S., but it's also partially due to strong demand in Japan and China and a number of other things. So I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that We've seen big price increases already as a direct result of this petition. That isn't to say that if tariffs were imposed, you wouldn't then see significant price increases. I think that really is the question. More what will happen if these tariffs are imposed than what's happening right now. I mean, it's pretty obvious to see what the Taiwanese sales are trading at. As soon as the trade case you know, launched, the Taiwanese folks raised prices. Yeah, the Taiwanese folks did, but so was everyone else. So they're raising it in tandem with the global market because at the same time you had the run-up in Japan. So Taiwanese sell prices now maybe $0.43 cents a lot. Um, there's a cost incurred by Chinese manufacturers for using those Taiwanese cells, so they pay maybe a $0.06 cent per watt premium over using their own cells internally. So there's, I'm, I'm not meaning to imply that there's no impact, but I think that you can't take the price increase that we've seen and apply it directly to this petition though it may have had some impact. So do we really know anything about how much tariffs would be, what the range of impact would be, and how that would influence uh, the, the economics of projects? Well, I'm, I'm Jigger can jump in as well, but, I mean, we definitely don't know what the tariffs will be if nothing happens in between now and then. Um, the only thing we can point to really is the precedent of the first case in which we ended up with tariffs that were around – 30% for the top tier manufacturers. That's not to say that it would be the same this time around. And there's an additional nuance to it, which is that you're going to get different levels of tariffs for China and Taiwan. And generally speaking, tariffs against any Taiwanese product tend to be lower than the tariffs against Chinese products because Taiwan, for the purposes of these investigations, is considered a market economy where China is not. So we really don't know what the tariffs would be, um, and obviously the impact of those tariffs is totally dependent on the magnitude of them. But I think in between now and when we know what those tariffs are, the focus in the interim is on whether there's a possibility of some kind of a negotiated solution that eliminates tariffs entirely. And that's the key here. The, what the administration will do to jump in here sounds like the Chinese are willing to negotiate here. Haven't seen much posturing from the administration on whether they're willing to negotiate. Catherine, how is this starting to play out in D.C., both in Congress and perhaps within the administration? Are you getting any signals on this? Uh, nothing overt. The White House, as you said, has not 
um, made any statements about this. I think they're going to need to get engaged at some point. Um, but we haven't got any signals from them yet on on their position, although certainly they're going to be helping you know, Department of Commerce in the trade case. Um, I would say something we need to watch out for is the Committee of Jurisdiction in the Senate is Senate Finance and Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, which is the state home state of Solar World's manufacturing plant. Uh, he's the new chairman of finance. So we need to watch out for what he's going to be doing. And he has previously taken positions um, on, you know, being pretty bullish on unfair trade practices, on focusing on China, on defending um, you know, U.S. steel workers and other labor groups um, in trade cases. That said, this is this poses a really interesting situation where we have a significant number of jobs in this country that are driven by the solar industry. And how do those juxtapose against the jobs that that this manufacturing plant represents? And how is that going to figure in to Senator Wyden's thinking about this? Yeah. Anybody getting a read on the administration's thinking on this? I mean, I just haven't seen any signals on whether they're willing to negotiate, even though the Chinese have supposedly uh, said that they're willing. Yeah, no, it's absolutely befuddling, right? I mean, I mean, Michael Froman's the key point person here. He used to be in the White House now, at the you know trade representative's office, and um, literally crickets. I mean, you know, we talked to them. They're like, well, the Chinese have to lead here. The Chinese have led. They've sent pretty strong signals saying that they want to get a deal done because China and the U.S. are, you know supposedly going to be the two largest growth markets in the world for the next five years and um and nothing you know no not even a response to saying here's the approach we might take in terms of price and floors or a treaty or the sia approach or or whatnot it's it's quite frustrating for those of us in the industry because we're thinking you know what what cloud is this going to put over the industry and what is this going to do to volume in the industry while the you know sort of white house figures out its options I will say that I've heard um, a number of times from a few different people who are kind of involved in whatever negotiations are taking place that the USTR is willing to negotiate. They, You're right, they're not saying anything publicly, uh, the administration or the USTR specifically, but I've heard that they're they're not really the problem here. The, the linchpin is solar world because there's no negotiation that can take place through the USTR that can't that doesn't have the approval of solar world. So solar world seems to hold all the cards here because... As Jigger said, China has pretty openly expressed its willingness to negotiate and certainly negotiated in a similar case in Europe. But we haven't seen similar rhetoric either publicly or from what I hear as much in private from SolarWorld. SolarWorld seems to be quite the pariah here. Uh, this time around, the solar industry seems to be isolating SolarWorld even more. Do you get that sense, uh, Shale? Yeah, I mean, Solar World definitely has less proponents on its side than it did last time. You know, last time Solar World, when they filed this petition, they filed it on behalf of this acronym CASM, the Coalition for American Solar Manufacturing. And at the time, there were a number of other uh, U.S.-based manufacturers that were sort of hidden behind the cloak, and Solar World was the, the front man, so to speak. A lot of those have gone out of business at this point, and a couple of the other ones for whom Last time around, it was a positive. This time, it's not a positive. So you really don't see much of a, a rallying cry in favor of Solar World at this point. And in fact, even Ron Wyden, who you mentioned before, who was arguably Solar World's biggest proponent on the Hill last time, I haven't seen a lot from him this time around either. 
Yeah, certainly nothing well, public. The other thing that's shocking to me is that everyone is counting Solar World out. I mean, everyone believes the Solar World is in a very weak position. When you look at the products that they're selling, they don't even have a 72 cell module that's being sold to utilities. So they don't actually even have the modules and the innovations that people have been relying on over the last three years in the crystalline space in their product portfolio. So why would the Qataris put $100 million into the company? I don't know if you guys saw this letter from the lawyer representing Chinese producers, but it was pretty harsh. Um, they say Solar World's marketplace failures are entirely of its own making, and this investigation now shifts to the U.S. Department of Commerce, where we'll continue to oppose Solar World's efforts to close the U.S. market, a market that, in any event, it has no hope of supplying. Ouch, <laughs> that's pretty harsh. Um, but let's you know, let's take another look at this. I mean, I think we're all in agreement to varying degrees that this won't be good for the industry, depending on the ruling. But let's be honest here. I mean, we need a process that will ensure fair trade. That's what this is all about. And you know, we're all um, excited about the, pro the drop in solar prices because of Chinese influence. But if there is a legal reason to do something after a thorough review of the facts, isn't that what we're obligated to do? Yeah, but what's the point, right? We're all addicted to cheap Walmart products, right? The reason why inflation in the United States has stayed in check is because we've relied over the last 35 years for China to do exactly what they're doing in the solar industry. So now when they've done exactly what we told them to do for the last 35 years, one German guy who's like off his rocker gets to like use obscure trade law to disrupt our industry, it doesn't make any sense at all. I'll say... Um, I personally have grappled with this a little bit throughout both this investigation and the initial investigation. Because if I look at it from a really broad, take, you know, five steps back, I'm sympathetic to the need to protect, you know, real fair trade practices. I'm sympathetic to the need for domestic manufacturing, high tech, and sort of future important products of the future. Um, so I like that the U.S. has a mechanism to protect itself against unfair trade. And then the problem is when I dive down into the details of this particular case and knowing what I do about the solar industry, I see that on balance it's really hard to make an argument that imposing tariffs on Chinese products is going to help the industry at large, the U.S. solar industry more specifically, uh, and even jobs within the industry. So I'm grappling between this sort of macro view of, yeah, I, I sort of get why we need mechanisms like this, and then actually looking at it play out in this case and, and not seeing how it helps. So you're basically saying net-net that we're going to pay higher prices for modules and we're still not going to get U.S. manufacturing. Well, that's right. I mean, that's, I think, the that's the problem with this particular case. But do you not agree that, in general, you know, ABCVD cases are a good thing for us to have? And what is it about this case that makes it not work where it might in other cases? The thing that pisses me off in general is that normally the industries that are being protected by this trade law are large, diversified industries. To get to the 50% of market share that you need to actually bring a case, you actually have to have five, six industry players work together within a trade association and the administration to bring this trade case against China. But in this case, because the U.S. has not had industrial policy for over 35 years, ever since Jimmy Carter was president, you've got one company that basically manufactures more solar cells than anyone else in the country by themselves. So they can actually bring the case without any permission from the, from the solar energy industry association, from the administration, from anyone else. You literally have a sole rogue actor who can do this without anyone else's buy-in or permission. 
Yeah, I actually tend to agree about that. I think that that's the biggest difference, and this is for anybody listening who uh, hasn't been following it as closely as Jigger and I have, the biggest difference between the process in Europe, which ended up with this negotiated settlement, and the process in the U.S. is that in Europe, they not only have the ability but a mandate when they're trying to decide whether to impose tariffs to look at it with sort of a holistic viewpoint and say, is this good for this overall industry and our economy in general, as opposed to saying, um, here are the criteria for dumping. Is it a yes or a no? And in the U.S., it's much more the latter. and in, in Europe, it's the former, which makes a big difference when you're trying to figure out how you're going to calculate whether there's tariffs imposed or not. All right. So, so in Europe, there is this precedent for a settlement. And it's still unclear what the administration is doing behind the scenes to try to reach some sort of settlement. Uh, Shale, if you're going to look out at this and you wanted to make any prediction, do you think this is going to go um, all the way to a ruling or do you think that a settlement will be reached? I think we'll see a settlement. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that a settlement is going to be reached at some point. I have a, a number of reasons why I'm optimistic about that, but not least of which is that we, it happened in Europe. Um, the question in part is, you know, what is that settlement? And then the other part of it is, when does that settlement happen? And, uh, you know, I'd love to see a settlement happen soon to provide certainty, but I, I do think it's possible that um, SolarWorld is going to kind of wait until you get some preliminary determinations on the margins and they find out how big the tariffs would be because maybe they're placing a bet that that'll give them a, a bigger negotiating chip when it comes time to actually talk about a settlement. All right. Well, a lot, a lot of people nervously, even angrily watching this closely. So Shale Khan's our guy, keeping his eyes on it. He is Senior VP of Research at GTM Research. We really appreciate you coming on. This is a fascinating and informative discussion. Thanks. Happy to be here. My goal is to become the uh, the Christopher Walkenist SNL as I'm going to be to the Energy King. So I'll be back. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> You've achieved that. <laughs> if I'm lucky, I guess I should say. Love it. Love it. Thanks, Shale. Right, take care, guys. Let's move into our second bit of news now about Tesla. After reporting solid fourth quarter results and beating profit expectations, Elon Musk has made another big announcement this week. The company will break ground this year on a gigawatt-scale 10 million square foot battery factory, maybe in Texas. This comes after partnering with SolarCity on commercial storage paired with solar and a high-level secretive meeting with Apple that no one really knows much about. So where is Tesla headed? Jigger, what's your take on what kind of t company Tesla is becoming? I mean... Certainly still an EV company and a very small one relative to the size of the auto industry, but perhaps becoming something more? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an, I'm not a big sort of speculator on a lot of that stuff. I think that the when you think about Apple and what Apple has become today, um, they, they, have, they have options and choices because they actually have real customer demand. And I think what Tesla has done is figured out how to – drive real customer demand with the consumer report score and the safety score and all these legions of fans that they have i think and th they have this ability to to really draw people in that means that if they want to build a battery factory they actually can sell um, those batteries in their own cars elon musk owns a part of solar city so he has the ability to use that battery technology within the solar industry and the storage and the same thing's true with self-driving cars, which he's looking at. So I think that he has the ability to decide when to introduce innovations 
from the marketplace that currently aren't being accelerated uh, because he can manufacture customer demand. Catherine, what do you think about this battery factory if it actually gets underway? How significant would this be for the storage industry itself? Yeah, I think it's it's great because it gives him a lot of options. As Jigger said, he can go he can go with the backup to rooftop solar. He can go with cars. He can go with grid scale. Kind of depending on where the markets are, he'll have all this ability. And I mean, right now in California, certainly the market is going to be on in the energy storage aspect. But the fact that he's got a car that everybody loves and that this will help drive down the cost of it, I think that's really powerful. And he'll get to follow the markets. I um, I talked to the folks from the Electric Drive Transportation Association, and they're really excited because they sort of see this as this is kind of – the lar- this kind of fits within this larger vision of the electric drive industry's plans, which is, you know, increase electricity in transportation, increase resilience for the grid, use of renewables. So they, they understand there are a lot of ways forward, and this is one of them. This meeting that they had with Apple was quite fascinating. So Musk did confirm to Bloomberg uh, recently that its head of mergers and acquisitions did meet with Apple, and he said he couldn't comment on what revolved around any kind of acquisition, but he responded by saying, um, I'd probably tell them that an acquisition would be a great idea. So, uh, you know, there's a more logical explanation in that uh, integration of Apple products to its operate in its operating system into vehicles might be a good idea for Tesla or help with this battery factory in some way. But many have speculated about this possible acquisition, um, and it was, after all, Tesla's uh, head of m a so apple has like a hundred and fifty dollars hundred and fifty billion dollars in cash and while they are still growing they desperately need to do something innovative with it to keep up with the pace of competitors um but i just can't see any way an automotive i can't see any way that automotive manufacturing would actually be good for apple can either of you can you see that an apple acquisition would actually make sense i think it's a great choice Elon Musk is an innovator. I don't think he's an operator. And Tim Cook is an operator, not an innovator. And so Apple actually needs to bring in innovations like Tesla. My sense is that Apple, if they got their hands on the car, could shave 20% off the cost of goods sold on that car without batting an eye because they're the best in the world right now at figuring out how to get costs out of building electronic items and all these other things. And so when you think about Tim Cook's job before he became CEO of Apple, his job was to figure out the supply chain for Steve Jobs. And I think that that's what Elon Musk needs. Yeah. And for Apple, it's, you know, they don't sell at a reduced price. I mean, we're willing to pay for what they're selling because of the consumer experience. And so in my mind, this is kind of the perfect match because, you know, Elon Musk is not trying to sell cheaply. He's trying to sell an experience. Well, Apple has $150 billion and Tesla's worth about $25 billion. So financially, it could work. Yeah, I actually also would not discount the benefit that that this could pose for utilities. Um, And so I'd like to talk about that on one of our episodes is how this isn't just cutting out the utilities, but it's actually giving the utilities more ability to adjust uh, in the coming years with just different business models. So I I actually think it's not bad for utilities that this is happening. In what way? What do you mean? Like specifically with Tesla and Apple? Well, with the, with the ability to do solar and storage, I think that um, being able to take advantage of state credit programs that are going to pop up given the EPA regs um, with additional state regulation, 
uh, with grids, with needing additional grid services um, because the grid is changing so much. I think utilities are looking for more services coming behind the meter, and I see this as a potentially big play for them. Well, this is the year of storage, and if Tesla can actually get this factory started and completed, we could see enough batteries to power about 500,000 vehicles or be used in other applications. So this really could be groundbreaking for the industry. And uh, Tesla says that that this factory alone could drive down the kilowatt-hour price of batteries by about 30%. Um, So let's see if it can happen. And back into a darker topic for clean tech in our ending segment, the Valley of Death. The ARPA-E conference was held this week, and as many have reported, there was a noticeable lack of venture capitalists at the conference. If you remember from our conversation in the last podcast, ARPA-E is working on funding early-stage innovative technologies in the hopes of passing them off to VCs or other government agencies or strategic investors. The problem, however, is that the so-called Valley of Death, this dangerous space between invention and true commercialization, still looms very large for a lot of inventors looking for capital to get their products into market. Catherine, you said you were having a lot of conversations with folks at the conference about this exact topic. What were you hearing? Yeah, I spent a lot of time down on the floor, the exhibit floor, talking to different people, listening to folks speak. And one of the companies I talked with is a startup that I've been following for a while in the energy storage space, of course. And I asked them how they were doing. And I, and I asked them specifically, so uh, what about this valley of death? Have you, <laughs> have you seen it on the horizon? And, and they said, well, you know, there's this RPE has a team called the T2M, Tech to Market Team, that its entire purpose is to get their invest their investments their portfolio companies in front of investors major companies you know build partnerships make the right connections and advocate for them so he said you know they just brokered this huge deal with a major major company that's going to allow them to deploy their energy storage um, technologies, which I thought was great. And I know it's not going to work for everybody, but the fact that RPE has built in this team that can help do that, I think says a lot about the program. A lot of people are saying that mergers and acquisitions are the big exit now. And of course, we've seen a lot of M&A activity, but the technologies that are really succeeding are these low capital, clean web type companies. Jigger, do you see any any closing of the valley of the death for some of these super capital intensive battery technologies or other uh, grid scale technologies? Well, I think, you know, you guys have been doing some really good reporting on this. And I think the big news that came out of RPE were several of the corporate folks who basically said, look, we're abandoning um, new breakthroughs technologies and moving towards technologies that are proven in the marketplace that we can actually scale up. I think GE said that loud and clear. So did BASF. Chevron is saying the same thing, um, which is you know basically what I've been saying with my book and et cetera. I mean, is that when in the energy tech space, you just don't take a new technology directly out of RPE into, into the commercial marketplace. It takes about 10 years in between there to um, to do that. And I think you know, that's what most of the news articles that I read um, out of RP uh, were saying was just that these corporates are now admitting that this is what they're focused on. 
Yeah, you know, one of the one of the booths that I thought had sort of the best gig going was Pew Charitable Trust. And I was talking to one of the program managers there and she said, you know, everybody comes to our booth every year and says, so can you give me any money? And she said, no, we don't give you any money. So this year what they did was they changed it up and they called it How to Find the Funding. That was their booth. And what they did was they had a series of TED Talks where they brought investors up. And these investors just stood there with microphones and said and gave slideshows and said, hey, this is what you guys, you and you entrepreneurs who are all here, you know, trolling the halls of ARPA-E for an investor. This is what you need to think about. So, for example, when I was there, Neil Auerbach from Hudson and um, Nikhil Garg from Black Coral were there. And they were talking about this is going to be there's going to be a new rise in clean tech. Um, it's about reinvention rather than substitution of technologies. It's not just about technologies, but solutions and, and integrated, you know, integrating distribution channels with finance and servicing and intelligence and all that. Um, how to drive down manufacturing costs through smart policy, which I picked right up on. And they also addressed sort of the materials based clean tech versus you know, the web-based clean tech, the, um, you know, the, the low capital clean tech. But, but actually, Auerbach said, you know, this is uh, the best time to be in that space because everybody else is bailing. So he thought he could probably get some good wins out of that. It was, it was interesting, that approach. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely some of the investors that are staying in this market, and they're probably the ones that are going to succeed. Now that they've learned the lessons, there are a handful of VCs and other strategic investors that probably understand better how to invest in these more capital-intensive companies. And jumping back to what you said, Jigger, this keynote address at ARPA-E was really fascinating to me because the two companies they had on stage, Waste Management and BASF, you know, one of the largest waste processing companies and one of the largest chemical companies, they had a message that was completely counter to what ARPA-E is trying to get at. And they basically said, hey, yeah, we're not going to be investing in any early stage startups anymore. Uh, waste management, for example, has invested in around uh, two dozen biofuel and waste processing startups over the last five or six years. And uh, the the gentleman from waste management said they had seen no successes yet. They had seen no successes. And he was brought on to to reconfigure their portfolio, try to bring up some of those failing companies and make them into successes. But he doesn't necessarily think that any of those investments are going to succeed. And they said, yep, we're just going to go for commercial scale technologies now. And so that's really worrisome to me. I think it makes sense when you look at the market dynamics, but at a conference like ARPA-E, where they're saying, we need to invest in these early stage technologies, you have people on stage who are saying, nope, not going to do it. Yeah, but wouldn't well, it have made a difference if it were GE and ABB? I mean, really, aren't those guys in totally different sectors? No, GE and ABB have backed up waste management completely. GE just put out a press release saying eco-imagination is now just about natural gas. Oh, and yeah. They're abandoning they're, the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, they're mostly so, natural gas now. Yeah, so I mean I, I think everyone agrees. I think hopefully what ARPA-E is hearing from this feedback is that they need to figure out a DARPA-like role where they become the first customer of these solutions as well since DOD and, D- and the U.S. government are the largest users of energy in the United States. And so if they can actually be the first customer using all of the other things that we've given them – then I think that's a huge breakthrough. But the other thing that I picked up on with ARPA-E was that John Podesta, in his fireside chat, made it quite clear that the piece that was missing in the uh, president's climate plan, which they're going to correct now, is that they forgot to mention energy finance and that he was going to figure out a way to put that back in. 
Yeah, that was great. I love that. Um, and I agree with you, Jigger, completely that ARPA-E needs to use the federal government as their first customer. I, I complete. I think that's completely true. Well, I mean, the first, you know, the first thing to solving one of these major problems is to realize you have a problem. Hopefully, these speakers from waste management and other places have pointed out crystal clearly to the administration that this is something they should focus on. Yeah, but this finance piece, I mean, Catherine, what does that mean logistically? So Podesta says that they left out finance, but, you know, what do you think the administration is doing to actually approach this beyond their hallmark loan guarantee program? I mean, am I missing something here? Well, what they can do within their current jurisdiction is on the federal side. So they can work on, you know, how you negotiate, how would the federal government negotiate third party contracts, what kind of metrics they can use, which I think you could then build in some pretty interesting clean energy solutions, um, you know, performance contracts, PPAs. I mean, they can do that on the federal side. I think, you know, a lot of other things would have to come out of Congress. So you would have to, you know, look at some kind of innovation tax, you know, innovation tax credits or um, a CETA, like a Clean Energy Development Administration, That's that would have to be authorized by Congress. Right, so right. you have to, at some point, start with Congress on some of these. But but the administration has some room to to maneuver um, within their own you know, jurisdiction. Look, one of the reasons why Richard Kaufman left to take the job in New York is because all of the work he was doing on finance was falling on deaf ears. The U.S. Treasury Department was completely against everything that he was pushing for. The IRS was so against what he was pushing for that all of the people who filed for um, for relief against the you know the REIT and MLP status stuff have pulled their applications. The first thing the administration could do is just say that they're open for business and they're no longer anti all these petitions that were being put forward. And the next thing they could do is actually force the IRS and Treasury and Gene Sperling's group and others to play nice. And John Podesta, I think, is the right guy to force them to do that. So far, they've just been anti-anything in this area. Yeah, REITs would only take a rule change in Treasury. And so, yeah, I, I agree. I think they could totally put pressure on them and try to get that through. That's something they could do. All right. Well, let's get into the last segment and tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, what do you have for us this week? Ah, yes. Yeah, so this week, uh, the long-awaited Congressman Camp, who's the chairman of House Ways and Means, the tax writing committee on the House side, released his tax proposal. This is his tax reform proposal. And you remember uh, right before Max Baucus was announced to be leaving to go to China, he also offered his tax reform proposal. And they're a little different, as you can probably imagine. And uh, Congressman Camp Basically, uh, you know, his proposal is to phase out all, all energy tax credits. So you can look at it as, oh, that's great that you're getting rid of some of the oil, you know, marginal well tax credits and things like that. But it also completely would decimate any of the clean energy tax credits. The production tax credit especially was just was not only slated for elimination, but slated for retroactively being reduced by 60 percent. So um it would it it's not going to pass there's nothing this is not going to move forward but what it does is it shows what kind of mood they're in and the signal that they're not in the mood to extend any kind of clean energy credits and that right now is the main focus of the wind industry the solar industry is trying to make sure that the extent and even the energy efficiency industry um 
that the extenders package uh, of all those 50 some credits that expired can move forward without having specific ones killed. And that's what we're nervous about now after seeing Camp's proposal. Camp was pushing a lot of sacred cows into the slaughterhouse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was, everybody hated it, but you know, everybody also cherry picked, uh, you know, how they read it. Jigger, what do you have for us this week? Well, I actually have two things. And so one is that, um, you know, Sun Edison's Yield Co. is getting a lot of play because uh, folks revealed that um, their secret IPO filing has uh, has happened. Um, and um, and I think the formal filing that everyone can read will come out in four weeks. But what's interesting about that is that they will be the first group that not only does utility-scale solar but also commercial-scale solar in their Yield Co. So it'll be quite interesting to see how they change the game on commercial solar financing because that's been – um, a little bit um, difficult to read. Um, the other, the other thing though is that for those of you who are f- focused on this polar vortex that we keep having, um, natural gas uh, storage is 27% below the average. We're within something on the order of like 25 days from running out of natural gas and storage. Um, because of that, we had an alert in the Cal ISO on February 6th and then again on February 10th, uh, which luckily they've built a lot of renewables um, so that the natural gas that they were sort of rationed on um, was able to be stretched because renewables were doing really well those two days. And so um, it's kind of interesting. It's not clear to me that we should be really doubling down on natural gas for our electricity sector given uh, these cold snaps and other sort of uh, vagaries of the weather. All right. I have a story that is out there. Uh, I mean, way out there, like the moon out there. We've all heard about all these crazy experiments for geoengineering and beaming solar from outer space. And I came across another one last night as I was going through my Twitter feed. So uh, the website Motherboard reported on this Japanese company that says it wants to develop a strip of solar panels the size of the Great Wall of China on the moon. And the panels would be shipped to Earth via satellite, and then a transmission station would be built to send the power via microwaves and lasers. So I haven't really gone much deeper than a couple stories I read on the Internet, so I'll let the physicists out there tell, tell us if that's even possible to do. But I, I bring the story up not because I'm excited about it, but because it highlights my own divided thinking on these big, ridiculous ideas uh, and realistic deployment. So – you know, as was clear during our Valley of Death conversation, I think deployment is key. I think we need a decade or two more of track record in the field before technologies can be truly scaled up. And and given that, I think we need to be focusing our attention on how to make that happen. But while I find myself scoffing at ridiculous plans like this solar farm on the moon, I can't help but congratulate folks behind this. I mean, let's assume that theoretically it could work. It takes a special breed of person to try to execute on that and have the cojones to try to make it happen. So I say, you know, to those Japanese inventors, if you can pull the money f- together for it, go for it. Because we need people who are thinking way outside our normal bounds because you never know what we're going to learn for it, from it. No, that's totally true. And on top of that, these big ideas, it's what is what encourages the kids of today to get into science you know, in technology jobs because they just get inspired by these big ideas. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening this week. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. 
for links to the stories we discussed, go on over to greentechmedia.com. You can subscribe to our RSS feed while there and also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and be sure to rate our show or leave us a review as well. A final reminder to come check out our live show in D.C. at the Building Energy Summit on April 1st if you're in town. More details on that are 2014.buildingenergysummit.com. A fun show this week. Nice to be together after a little hiatus. Catherine Hamilton, have an awesome week. You too. And can I make a quick correction that the production tax credit in Camp's bill would be reduced to 60% rather than by 60% of what it is now? Sorry. Correct. Duly noted. Had to to say that. No problem. And Jigger, any corrections for you? Well, you know, I did write a fairly uh, bold piece on LinkedIn and I think on Green Tech Media for. um, camp spill. I mean, I, look, I think it's great. If we can get rid of the oil and gas subsidies, I'm happy to phase out our stuff. Well, I'll look through it to see if you have any spelling or grammar mistakes, and we'll issue a correction next time. <laughs> <laughs> With my friends and co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Music